0: welcome once again to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And on today's program, Portrait of the Artist as a Perpetually Young Man. We're going to hear a conversation about the creative life with the painter Richard Mayhew. His long career took him from a childhood in a mixed African-American slash Native American community in Long Island to New York at the peak of the abstract expressionist movement to Europe and back. He was also a jazz singer for a time in New York and we'll hear about that too. He established a national reputation as a painter before taking on a series of teaching positions at Penn State and other universities in the 1970s and 80s, and in 1991 he settled here in the Santa Cruz area, where he continued to teach and paint ceaselessly. Richard Mayhew is known primarily as a landscape painter, but as he's quick to point out, that may give the wrong impression. He doesn't paint directly from landscapes, or from pictures of landscapes, but rather from memory and feeling. The luminous pastoral images that take shape on his canvases are recognizably depictions of nature, but of a deep and elemental sort. Richard Mayhew says it's all part of a lifelong inquiry into the sources of creativity and the illusionistic properties of art. I spoke to him last week in his Soquel home, surrounded by his works. You were born in 1924? Right. In, uh, in Long Island, in Amityville. hmm and um, you grew up in a community, uh, that part of Amityville, that was Native American and African American. And African American. And did people in that community think of themselves as Native American and black American, or, or how did they identify? Well,
1: Native Americans were completely dis- discriminated, so everyone was taking more on, on the basis of African American identity, because they're the ones who were accepted and able to get jobs. Native Americans were difficult being hired, so it's a dual, this kind of dual background.
0: Your parents both had mixed Native American and African American right. ancestry. What's mm-hmm. really interesting, I think, that will strike um, some people as surprising, that it was better, in terms of racial prejudice, to be a Black American than a Native American in that place. To be an African American. Yes, to be an African American,
1: right. because it had to do with property rights, oh. and and treaties. And uh, so if you have a Native American identity and it's accepted by the government, then you have rights to land.
0: The Afro-Americans don't have any rights to land. So, so what you're saying is that um, at this time, at least, and in this place in, in Long Island where you grew up, mm-hmm. Native Americans were considered a bigger threat than African Americans because of their claim or their potential property. claim to property, right. which had been appropriated from uh, the Mm -hmm. original Native American inhabitants. Mm -hmm. So that part of your identity was sort of um, swept under the rug in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, but you knew because your grandmother Mm -hmm. uh, was uh, Shinnecock Indian. Right. So you knew something about this. And then actually uh, my grandfather was Unitech. So when you were growing up, thinking of yourself primarily as African American because you say that was the identity that was sort of assigned at the time, was there much racism uh, that you, you experienced? Well, there,
1: see, there's a problem to thinking of myself Afro-American with the dual culture. Internally, I thought of myself as Native American. Oh, you Externally, did? Externally, I consider myself Afro-American. Ah. So I wasn't involved with identifying necessarily creatively internally with either group. And that's where the art form started to take over. In terms of creative consciousness doesn't get lost in any ethnic background, no matter what background one comes from. It's involved with the uniqueness of uh, experimental searching for a unique reality,
0: really, mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. That's not a good explanation of it, but anyway. So um, as, as, a, as a child growing up, you're, I think you're telling me that you had a more fluid sense of identity than these social categories. Right. Um, trap. T- sort of trap you it's in. It's kind of a trap. But how did the world treat you at a time when America, as we all know, was very racist, was very segregated? Mm-hmm. How did the world treat you as someone with dark skin?
1: Well, it had to do with discrimination. I was certainly discriminated against. Although in Amityville, there was the school system tried not to be involved with that, which was surprising.
0: It was integrated?
1: It was integrated.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, Even in the 1930s. Right. But 20s. So they
1: try not to get involved with that. And uh, like in the movies, in some places, uh, African Americans had to sit in a balcony. In Amityville, they could sit anywhere, which is very unusual. That was going on at that time when I was this boy. Uh-huh. Even though there's certain areas, such as my father was a, a painter, a contractor, but he couldn't get the contracts unless the some a white person gave had the contract, and then he had to take advantage of it. So you have discrimination subtly like that that went on, Mm. Uh, which is prevalent today in many ways, but you can't pin it down, Mm -hmm. unconscious discrimination. Mm.
0: Mm. How did you first come to painting then?
1: Actually, I started drawing very young uh, sketches and drawings all the time as a youngster. It It was kind of intuitive. And then uh, in the summers, you had the um, Hudson River Painters. And artists from New York used to come to the countryside in Amityville, which is right under water. The painters that came there were the Hudson River Painters, some of them. This is so a I very. I used to sit there and watch them as a little boy.
0: This is, this is a very famous school of American landscape right. painting. And right. you used to see members of this famous right. group of painters come and paint where you were growing up on Long Island.
1: And uh, I used to go and watch these painters. They'd come there every summer. And uh, they were, uh, I guess, um, uh, mesmerized by this young man just sitting there watching them paint all the time. They was curious about it. So they handed me a brush one day, and they said, we'll see if we can do it. And uh, in the course of this, they felt that this young man has some talent. So one of them taking me on as his apprentice every summer.
0: This was uh, this man who took you under his wing was James uh, Wilson. James Wilson Peel.
1: Actually, he was a, a medical illustrator as well. And that's where I learned illustration mm. It's from him. Two really,
0: right. really different uh, well, jobs. Well, I think
1: he made a living as a medical illustrator. But his background name was the famous Peel family in the United States, famous American painters.
0: Why, why do you think um, this man who was a member of a famous family of painters, James Wilson Peel, why did he take you, this young boy who he'd just met? And well, he
1: just... He, he accepted me when I was there, and he encouraged me. And how much during the summer he was there, you know, it was the whole summer, mm. right? And so that's, I absorbed as much as I could get from him and the other artists that were on the beach because they were interested in what a, this young artist was doing, especially the fact that he was a minority person. We never saw that. We never
0: saw a minority do any painting like that. So these painters were Caucasian. They were white. These, yes, they were all white. They were all white. Right, and you were a kid of color, to use the contemporary expression. Right. right, and and they thought that was interesting. They wanted to help you out. Well, if it, it was fascinating that the the talent is
1: here, right, mm-hmm. and how much the prejudgment is out there, and the fact that here, you know, if they have an opportunity, here it is, right. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> but you're saying they had a progressive feeling about this. They wanted to help this kid right. who was a member. Yeah, they of wanted to help. Right?
1: Yeah, well, it has to do with the artist. It's a strange thing. Most of the artists were not prejudiced.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Most of the artists I know were not prejudiced, even though they were caught up in the prejudice game of who's left out in the art market, but the artists themselves are not.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I'm very glad to hear that. All right. <laughs> one, one hopes that art is inextricable from humanity from real sensitivity and humanity, you mm-hmm. know, that a real artist has a real heart?
1: Well, this is what I found from them, too, because I was in store with my grandmother not involved with any prejudice about anybody because uh-huh. there was that sometime in the community in terms of why it's going to do you in attitude, right? But the fact that there were these, they were very helpful and very supportive and so another consciousness that was involved because of the their creative existence they were involved with. And it's a very open kind of lifestyle they, they were living, right? Mm-hmm. And that was unique for me also. Y- I never got that from the rest of the community, let's say. Okay.
0: The rest of the community was... Was well, separate. Separate. And there were, there were stricter, more conventional ideas of racial boundaries. Right, right, right. Um, what was your feeling about landscape at this time? I mean, you saw these landscape painters. You eventually became a painter whose subject matter is nature.
1: This was installed by my grandmother in terms of the sensitivity of nature, which is part of Native American cultural sensitivity. Nature is involved with constantly replenishing itself and reinventing itself and the, the spiritual uniqueness which is in, in nature. And so my grandmother's want to install me the, the respect and uniqueness of nature.
0: So you were, from a very early age, very responsive to the natural environment?
1: Well, responsive to nature, the, the changing of the seasons, the evolution of continuation, of never failing, never dying, rebirth, constant rebirth. And then in Long Island, there was this cycle, definitely cycle, of going through the different seasons very openly from one season to the next and beautiful transitions of respect of that time period. My grandmother always made me conscious of the changing of nature. Every little, every little blade of grass. There was a fire there, which is now many fires over the place, in the wooded area, and everything died, the trees and everything. In about six months, it all came back. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I'm um, looking at a catalog of your work uh, that came out in conjunction with some recent museum exhibitions, a retrospective, held in, in three museums in the Bay Area. Uh, and one of the earliest pieces of your work that they actually have in this exhibition uh, is from uh, 1950, or it says 1950s, and it's called Gull Island.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Gull Island. Uh, and this is a scene from, from Long Island where you yeah, grew it's up? Long Island Sound, right. Mm-hmm. It's this um, very atmospheric, misty depiction of... Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what looks like uh, marshlands or marshlands. And there are these pilings, these posts sticking up maybe from some old structure and gulls perched on some of them. Um, It's very dreamy. Well, it has have to do with that whole
1: feeling in terms of the sensitivity and the subtle feeling of space, Mm -hmm. but also uh, involved with distance and time. A pole in terms of how close it is, how far away it is, how vertical, how high, how short. And also, the horizontal line gives great distance right away, and uh, there was that I got involved with the the mystique of time space illusion, Hmm. and I wasn't always conscious of it, but later on, I became more and more aware of this.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking it's kind of timeless. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, there's nothing to say that this is the 1950s or 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 the 20th century. Yeah, no, it's very timeless. Right. Yeah. in your late teens, in 1941, I think, you moved to New York mm-hmm. from Long Island. And New York at that time really was be, had become or was becoming the, the center of the art world.
1: New York was a flourishing art world at that yeah. time. I mean, at, at that time... The abstract expression started to emerge out of that period. And uh, <clears throat> I was uh, involved with uh, studying in New York at the time at Brooklyn Museum. And uh, studying with Edwin Dickinson, which is one of the greatest American painters, and which I didn't know at the time. He's just another teacher to me at the time. Mm-hmm. didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. And then Reuben Tam, which was a fantastic landscape painter in the country.
0: Among the other people you studied with, you, you mentioned Edwin Dickinson and um, Ruben Tam. Tam. But um, I've got a list here of some of the others. Uh, some of the others
1: is mythical.
0: Yeah, Max Beckman. <laughs> Max Beckman. <laughs> Famous German expressionist. At
1: Brooklyn Museum. But you have to realize... I used to just visit his classes. I didn't study with him.
0: Okay. How about William Basioti's, an abstract expressionist? Basiotis, yes. I did study with Basiotis.
1: And he was very sensitive to me on the basis of the fact that he felt intuitively there was some mystical connection there, right? So he used to respond to me that way. And then Hans Hoffman, I used to visit classes in New York.
0: Hans Hoffman, very famous abstract expressionist and That's teacher, right. and teacher of many, right. many a painter. Right.
1: So I a his class. Again, there's this mystical connection. And all I was visiting, I didn't go study there with him. So when I was in the room, he started talking to me, right? And, uh, and I was like a guest, right? <laughs> you know, the student trying to find out what's going on here. Who's this guy that he's talking to?
0: <laughs> what did you learn from these associations with well-known artists, the, the people you were just naming?
1: As it's said, sen- from the very early beginning, it has to do with the mystery of creative consciousness. I became more aware of that. The creative sensibility of creativity had nothing to do with ethnicity, has nothing to do with any particular direction or technique. It has to do with an internal special world, which many associate with religion, right? So, and many others feel that that's what their the painting is, is the, their religion, right? Now, many writers were involved with making that kind of suggestion many times. And also composers certainly are in that kind of state. They didn't want any disturbance, they want to be live in this special world of isolation creative thinking. Right? So there was this kind of connection and become more aware of creative sensibility. Mm. And what is the meaning of this? Where is it? So I was try, always trying to pin it down when I realized later, on, it's very elusive. There's no way you can pin this down and put a tag on it. And this is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's the mystical consciousness of a being and how it's involved with, uh, transferring and support relationship with other people. And this is what I was getting from many of these artists when I went in. And going into the room and young Hans Hoffman over walking over to me because I was just a guest. The rest of the guests he never went over and talked to. Right. So there was this connection always, just the kind of spiritual, kind of creative thinking. Then maybe I have this,
0: right? <laughs> For you and your development, mm-hmm. it sounds like this is a kind of validation that right. I, I too have whatever this mysterious thing is that makes these other guys painters. I, but have I was it always too. trying to pin it
1: down, and I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't understand this. Now, in later years, I understood what was going on, uh. but then I did not. Uh. And Edwin Dickens accepted me right away and embraced me and supported me as, as a uh, a colleague. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's unbelievable, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't patronage at all, I found out. And nothing to do with patronizing this uh, young colored artist, right? Mm. Had nothing to do with that at all. Mm. He felt that there was some special talent. Because once I asked him, you have to realize that time I was a jazz singer. I was trying to make a decision between singing and painting.
0: Tell me about your jazz singing.
1: Well, the jazz area, I got involved with singing. I realized early on that I had a voice. And uh, so then I got involved with the jazz groups, and I started hanging out singing a little bit. And then I found out I became a professional singer for about four years. Who would you sing with? Oh, I sang with Billy Taylor Trio. I sang with a couple of groups around New York. And... uh, I, I sang in the uh, I don't know if you know about the borscht. circuit upstate New York. Yeah, borscht belt. And and I sang at the Neverly Hotel and Grossingers. Grossingers in in Catskills. And then I painted their families. You paint you what? Portraits of the family. Oh really? So this is. I've been trying to find those portraits of the Grossinger family I painted.
0: This is the most famous of the Catskill resorts. That's right. A Jewish resort, uh, you know, uh, where Jews mostly from the New York area and New Jersey mm-hmm. would go in the summer mm-hmm. and see all kinds of famous entertainers, mm-hmm. including yourself, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I used to paint portraits in the afternoon and sing at night. <laughs> I was just a filler and I wasn't a major star, okay? I'd fill in between acts, right? <laughs>
0: Uh, what kind of a, a singer were you? Who would you compare yourself to? Jazz singer, yeah. But who who would you compare yourself to? Well, so at the time, I sense...
1: used to imitate uh, Arthur Prysock and Billy Eckstein. I imitated them. Two of the best, right? Yeah. And that was part of my whole thing. Right? Can you still do it? But I still do it.
0: Yeah, let's hear it.
1: Without a song, a day would never end.
0: That's it. <laughs> That's all? <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on, keep going. <laughs> I thought Billy Eckstein was sitting right there. You
1: no, know, that was part <laughs> of it. And, and also Arthur Price, I used to imitate him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this was part of a thing at the time. But painting and the visual arts went out because there was the difference, the difference between the two there's instant applause as an entertainer. As an artist, you might get applause sometime or
0: never. So why did why did painting win out over your musical career?
1: Well, it had to do with that's pretty rough life. The clubs, at the, especially touring. at that time, yeah. And there was a lot of discrimination in terms of where you. Put, and hiring, entertaining, you know. Uh, black artists couldn't go to the South and singing and or performing, and different areas around the country they couldn't go. So so there was this limitation there, but that's not what deterred me. It's the fact that the lifestyle was pretty rough.
0: <laughs> of course, a lot of the jazz musicians in that era were doing heroin.
1: And uh, many of saw the diaphyrosis of a liver from alcoholism early on, they died in their 30s. Mm. A great trumpet player and a and saxophonist died, and he was only about 30, 32 years old. Mm. And uh, so there was a, like, and Charlie Parker died very young.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, on the other hand, uh, in the New York art scene, some of these painters were also living very hard. We all know about Jackson Pollock, That's but there right. were others who were hard drinkers. I used to and,
1: hang out in the uh, Cedar Bar in New York where a lot of the abstract
0: expressionists hung out, yeah?
1: I used to hang out there. So you hung out with who? Pollock was there, de Kooning was there, and and Klein. Actually, Klein stole one of my drinks one night. (laughs) I went to the restroom and left my drink on the bar, and I came back and picked it up. It It tastes like water. And the bartender started laughing. He says, meet Franz Klein. That's when I met him. <laughs> and he, he was laughing. Because <laughs> they watered his drinks down because he had heart problems.
0: Yeah, he, uh, he, he is a pretty hard drinker from what I understand. Right. Um, so you remember the club in a way. I mean, you knew these guys.
1: I was on a fringe. I was very young compared to them. Uh huh. I was a youngster, always invading their territory, right? <clears throat> and also I went to the social realist group, uh, which is the, the Sawyer Brothers and several others. I used to go and visit with them which they encouraged me. Raphael Sawyer and I became good friends, and he was very supportive of me. Right? There again, there was this spiritual connection between he and I, and, mm. and also his brothers, uh, Moses Sawyer, also became a friend of mine. Mm. Right? Mm. So there was another connection in terms of social realist, abstract expressness, and uh, also the Barbizon School. So I was in this mix of the creative process of different directions,
0: well, let's let's uh, sort this out for listeners. We have the abstract expressionists. I think everybody knows who they were. You know, the most famous of them were Jackson Pollock and Franz Kline mm-hmm. and Willem mm-hmm. de Kooning and mm-hmm. uh, Archil yeah. Gorky and uh, mm-hmm. Mark Rothko, mm-hmm. Barnett Newman, mm-hmm. um, those guys. Mm-hmm. Then you have the social realist guys who were painting depictions of social reality at the time, right. often sort of left-wing, social, right. socially progressive right. people. And then Barbizon School is a 19th century school of French... You know, sort French of famous. Yeah, I mean, people—if they think of Barbizon, they might think of mie the Gleaners, these pictures of peasant life in France. Mm-hmm. These very lovely mm-hmm. pictures. And you were saying you're mixing all of them together. Now, the the happening thing in New York at the time was abstract expressionism. You know,
1: in the de Bar, Clement Greenberg and Rosenberg, the Those writers, two great critics, was there all the time. And I was there the night to, to say that we're going to make these artists famous.
0: Come on. That's right. Really. And they did it. These two critics, Harold Rosenberg and Clement Greenberg, really did make the abstract expressionists, you know, they helped to make their reputation, to cement them. They even named their. their And later on,
1: they called it the painted word. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It didn't, uh, wasn't it? Which one of them, Rosenberg or or Greenberg, coined that term, action painting? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Right. So these critics really played a fundamental role in establishing this school, which became all the rage. But meanwhile, here you are with sort of old-fashioned tendencies toward you know, landscapes. Towards landscapes. So how mm-hmm. did you fit into all this?
2: Well, in
1: 1957, I had an exhibition in Greenwich Village. And New York Times wrote about it. The fact that this is a neo-Barbazon painter. Or the fact that there's a very unique kind of spiritual sensitivity in these works, which hadn't been seen in a long time. Yeah. So that kind of launched me into a direction that way. They was accepting actually what I felt internally by the art market, right?
0: And that was okay, even at a time when the the real um, you know happening thing was this was in the, the middle of the abstract person Yeah, format, yeah, right? yeah. So so you were kind of the odd man out.
1: Yeah, but yeah, but then they they saw that this was a form of abstract landscape painting. Ah, that's what accepted me. Yeah, it, because it wasn't directly from subject matter. Mm-hmm. It was. Mm-hmm. Um, A mesmerized interpretation Mm -hmm. of of landscapes.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we should say for the sake of listeners that that though your um, paintings, the ones we've been talking about, depict nature, they verge on abstraction. And they have a lot of the same values, uh, I think, uh, of some of the the paintings that emerged out of the abstract expressionist Mm -hmm. movement. I I bet you've been compared sometimes to Mark Rothko, for instance, Mm -hmm. these kind of beautiful, floating, Mm -hmm. atmospheric... Mm-hmm. Color field uh, mm-hmm. qualities, yeah. but
1: early, my early work was tonal. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh huh, uh huh. And what was going on? Because when I was accepted that show on, in 1957, you have to realize that was launching me into a new world of creative consciousness. And I went to the McDowell Colony.
0: The McDowell Colony. This and is an, an artist MacDowell colony. colony yeah. I met
1: writers and composers, talked about spiritual creative consciousness, and that launched me into a whole. World of acceptance of how I was thinking, and mm, mm. met several great poets there at the time. What happens at the, the art colonies, even though you're a youngster or beginning in your particular field, there's no separation, there communication, and which is excellent. It's kind of acceptance right away of that you're part of this particular world mm. of creative development, and so that was very good for me at the time, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so from then, I went to Europe right after that. This is in the late 50s. Yeah. But you have to realize, MacDowell Colony kind of launched this creative sensibility that I was dueling with within myself for a long time. What is this? You know, Why is it? Where is it? In what sense was it a duel inside of you? The fact, this mystical world here of the life that's internal. Which was not part of performing arts at all at the time. Mm. I didn't feel that with the performing arts, but I felt it was a panic. Mm. So that's why I just continued to stay in the visual arts. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to the performing arts, mm-hmm. although I
0: enjoyed it so much. I loved that world. <laughs> um, it sounds like in describing your relationship to these other artists, to your instructors, Edwin Dickinson... Uh, people you met like Hans Hoffman and uh mm-hmm. and painters like William Baziotis and um, Max Beckman and then later uh meeting other artists in the McDowell colony, this artist colony, mm-hmm. it sounds like what you, you were looking for and what you needed was a sense that this was a way you could live. This was a real way to make a life. But also
1: was discovering the it's not a commercial element. Yes. It was involved with the spiritual sense of, the day of, of a creative existence. Yeah. And what is the creative existence? It's certainly a, a, a lifelong commitment. Mm-hmm. And then to
0: making a living at it, I had, at this time I had two children. All right? Uh, that was going to be one of my questions. <laughs> right. Okay, it's all well and good that you have artistic talent and a mystical sensibility, but how do you pay the bills? Yeah. how did you manage
1: that? I had to find a way to survive. So I became an illustrator. A book illustrator. A book illustrator.
0: In fact, children's we, book illustrator. And in, in fact, we're fortunate to be sitting here um, with a couple of these old children's books from the early 60s that you illustrated. And your name is actually on the cover of a lot of them. I'm going to read some titles mm-hmm. um, Samuel Morse and the Telegraph, the first book of tools, the story of the 12 tools of man. Mm-hmm. Let's find out about water. Mm -hmm. A couple of um, biographies of uh, famous scientists, Um, William Harvey, trailblazer of scientific medicine, and uh, Galileo and experimental science. But I'm looking at these classic illustrations, and um, I never in a million years, if I hadn't seen your name on the cover of these books, would have guessed that the same painter whose work I'm looking at on the walls is the guy who drew these illustrations. They're totally different style. They're, I don't recognize your style at all in here
1: This came from meeting those people
0: on the beach in Long Island Being able to learn to draw uh, Yeah, learning to draw And then then your early mentor, James Wilson Peel Said that I should study everything and look at every technique in drawing as and, he was, and he was an illustrator himself so, so I just launched
1: and going out and doing that
0: Wow Mm-hmm. Now I heard a story about this book I'm looking at now which is called Let's Find Out About Water. It's a it's a book for young children about water. It's pictures of mm-hmm. you know where water comes from, mm-hmm. how water uh is formed in the natural environment. I heard a story that when you first drew these kids, you had kids of color and white kids mm-hmm. in these illustrations.
1: Well, when I first did this book, I didn't make them of color, but then they said no, I mean, maybe generalize these books Make them all white Well, yeah. no, there's some sections there you'll find I, I weaved in some of the others
0: Oh, did you? Yeah, right But as I understand it, the publisher told you to, to make these kids white Right Yeah? Right Oh, I see, I'm looking at the kids on the beach And I see that, yes, indeed, it's subtle But if you look closely right. These are not all just Caucasian kids Right, right Wow But <laughs> but that really is quite a story I mean, that first of all, that you tried to integrate these illustrations, and that you were told not to mm-hmm. in the early '60s.
1: Right. I did uh, also magazine illustrations for Harper's Magazine, mm-hmm. in which was involved with stories about uh, subway and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so these books was part of it, it was making a living some way. Mm-hmm. Right? So, during the, during the uh,
0: 50s. So commercial art of that kind of illustration. And then mm-hmm. later on, you became a, a university professor. You taught, uh, yeah. you taught at places like Smith College and then Penn mm-hmm. State for quite mm-hmm. a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell me about going to Europe in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had spent a good amount of time now in New York. you would established yourself as a painter. You would had a gallery show. You'd gotten to know a number of prominent artists. Now you go off to Europe. Mm-hmm. what were you looking it was for? It a learning process. I'm still learning. Yeah. I'm still a student. Yeah. Well, what was Europe like for a budding artist well, at I that time? Well, I went to
1: study in Florence, <laughs> Italy. It was the seat of the Renaissance at mm-hmm. that time, right? Mm-hmm. Of the earlier period. Yeah. And uh, so it was very unique, going to the Uffizi Museum and so forth. And and uh, also, I've studied optics and how the mind receives what the eye sees. And I got involved with the whole illusion of time-space to have the eye and the mind recognize what it sees. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this was good for me. Hmm. It was books in the uh, Uf- in the Uffizi Museum and also in the Rijksmuseum mm-hmm. in, in Amsterdam when I went to Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. All right. And then uh, in the archives of the Louvre, I had a, a chance to go there. And uh, also, it was still a learning process for me. I'm still learning. Mm. And that today I'm still learning. Mm.
0: An artist never stops learning of these stagnates. Mm-hmm. You were given special access to the archives in the Louvre, the uh, I believe the Prado in in uh, Madrid, right. and uh, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. Right. Uh, all very famous museums. What were you able to do in these archives?
1: Well, in their archives, as paintings, you'll never be exhibited. Yeah. So you see drawings of Rembrandt, paintings, that you drawings would never be on exhibitions. So that's the uniqueness of being able to access to an archives and see the fantastic drawings and paintings and sketches, which is very unusual, that will never be seen. You're the only one seeing them.
0: Yeah, the the, the art that people see on the walls of museums is only a small fraction, usually, of those museums' holdings. And they have large vaults full of paintings and other artworks that people will never see. Um, and you got access to these mm-hmm. unseen works in, in the Rijksmuseum, doing in Amsterdam. And that's where Rembrandts mm-hmm. are housed, yes? In, you know, in yeah. France Halls. And yeah, some, right. You know, some of the great uh, 17th century Dutch painters. Mm-hmm. Um, you lived in Europe for what, about four years? No, less than that. Less than that?
1: Just about two years. At two the years. Most, two at the years. Most,
0: right. Aside from getting this first hand exposure to old masters' works.
1: Well, in terms of I knew about the arts, all i seen is reproductions all these years. Yeah. And actually seeing the real paintings. Yeah. And the, the mystique of a real painting is unbelievable. It's quite different than any reproduction. Mm hmm. It's completely absorbing. And uh, the technique and application, the whole thing. The whole nother world of of reality. It's amazing to see the see the the real work, larger than life, right? And uh so this was inhibiting right away, very inhibiting. Oh, inhibiting! Right? <laughs> <laughs> that the fact that the worst thing about being a great artist is who's always on the other side of the mountain. Now the mountain got much further away. <laughs> <laughs> intimidating. Yeah, can I do this? Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right.
0: So so how did that affect your development as an artist then? That exposure to the to the masters. Well, it works.
1: had to do with my ambition actually it was challenged even more. Mm. And the that creative commitment I wanted to get more involved with understanding that, right? Which was the mystique mystical world of my grandmother, right? It all started then. Wow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then she died before I became an artist. She had never knew. Oh, oh. And that always bothered me. Yeah. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, I know she knows no yeah. matter what, right? Yeah. And here it was. I was still in the middle of couple, one of the museums. I felt like a little tiny little boy just beginning to learn of what I was involved with, yeah. the real world of what I was involved yeah. with, right?
0: You continued after that time, though, um, if I correct me if I'm wrong, to focus on nature, on landscape. That was your. I had
1: to find an element that would express this spiritual sensitivity. Yeah. And doing figures didn't seem to do it for me. Yeah. Doing the still life didn't seem to do it. And I wanted to do it that way, but so I found that landscape really was closer to the mystery of nature. So I started using nature. So something is pulling you It's always there To treat it's, it's on the other side of the mountain So when I came out to the Rocky Mountains I found out there's a mountain here But there's 10 more mountains out there mm. beyond this mm. That I haven't climbed yet mm. Okay mm. <laughs> mm. And I'm 80 years old mm. All right?
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Well let's see How could you be 80 if you were born in uh, 24? A little older Oh okay <laughs> <laughs> I always subtract, you have to realize that. Right. <laughs> well, you could have fooled me. Somebody said, you. well,
1: when were you born? I said, <laughs> 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 1940.
0: Well, let's, uh, let's talk about your paintings um, more specifically. Uh, we've been talking about your development as an artist, and by the 1960s, after you got back from Europe, I mean, you were, you were developing what I would call, from looking at some of your works, a mature style. Is mm-hmm. that a, is that a fair statement Pardon? that you had developed a mature style by the time, uh, by the nineteen sixties? Well, maturity is still happening. I don't, yeah.
1: my, I don't think in terms of that, reaching that level at all. I said this is the next mountain. Uh, okay, okay, it's the next mountain.
0: Okay, I take it back. But but what I'm seeing in the works of yours that I've seen from the nineteen sixties is that um, you have developed a a very identifiable uh, Richard Mayhew style. Mm-hmm. I could begin to say that's a Richard Mayhew. Mm-hmm. Now now looking at your paintings as I'm doing right now sitting here in your living room a lot of people would say landscape painting you know I see that that is a landscape I see that mm-hmm. there's some water some grassy ground and then some trees rising mm-hmm. in the sky in the distance but you don't like to call yourself a landscape painter mm-hmm. And it's partly because of your process, is that right? Mystical painting. Mystical painting. Mm-hmm. But also the fact that you aren't really painting either in plain air, that is outdoors, from a landscape. Illusion of nature. Yeah. You're not painting from a photograph. Mm-hmm. No. You're painting from some interior feeling mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. nature. Mm-hmm. Well, just tell us about how you come to the blank canvas and what you do with it.
1: Well, I do it. Like I learned that from Tony Morrison. So what are you doing? She says, Well, you put a piece of paper and typewriter and I just type some notes on there, right? And it starts to evolve from that. And that's what I do as a painter. Abstract expressionists, too. They just smear paint on there and all of a sudden they, they take off of the hills, let's say. Mm-hmm. So that's what I do. I take off of the hills. I just smear paint on the canvas and then he evolves, emerges in terms of some image of association with
0: nature. So okay, so you don't come to a canvas and say, I have an image I'm carrying in my head, and I'm going to represent that. I might have a feeling, but not an image. You have a feeling. And over time, a painting emerges.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and what emerges very, very often as I'm looking at your paintings mm-hmm. is a landscape, a kind of landscape. It's not any just any landscape. Mm-hmm. I don't see mountains or canyons or mm-hmm. vast forests. Mm-hmm. What I see is a very intimate landscape, mm-hmm. a few trees, mm-hmm. usually... A tree, though, is there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have a feeling for trees. Well, they're kind of monuments.
1: And they kind of identify a certain moment of time and space. So each one becomes like a monument. Mm -hmm. And a a sentinel.
0: Oh, you know, interesting you use that word sentinel because my subjective experience of your trees, and we should, again, say for listeners who haven't seen your work, these are very atmospheric, very diaphanous images. There are no sharp edges, right? This is, this is paint spreading out across the canvas and becoming a tree. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my feeling, you said sentinel, I have a feeling of these trees as presences, mm-hmm. as beings. Mm-hmm. A, a friend of mine said they're ghostly. They're not inanimate objects. No. There's some kind of incipient life in them, you know? Mm-hmm. How, how do you experience them as you paint them? <clears throat> well,
1: I had to get involved in terms of, if I, if I wanted the mystique of these forms I'm going to work, if you use hard edges, definitely there's a different form of hard edge. Yeah. It advances on the eye. Again, that's had to do with just control over two-dimensional space. Hard edge creates a, a advancement, and the soft edge it's elusive to the eye. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a playing, playing with that elusiveness of form and space. Yeah. Using soft edges. Not only that, uh, close color relationships where the other color is subtly different and changing from the other. And then uh, its intensity relationship is uh, subtle. Yeah. Instead of abrupt.
0: It <laughs> seems to me looking at your work um, from... The nineteen sixties through the present, your colors have gotten even more saturated and brighter over mm-hmm. time. Is that true? Color. Yeah.
1: And I got more involved with the challenge of color instead of tone. Uh-huh. Total pennies involved with form and shape and space. And as more of color, form, shape, and space it goes to the next degree mm-hmm. of development. Mm-hmm. And also as part of Native American culture. Quite involved with color. Also Afro American culture certainly involved with color.
0: Yeah. <laughs> You know, color as more than form, color as content. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that strikes me, and again, I'm going to give some information at the end of this interview so listeners can take a look at your work themselves, but for now they're going to have to depend on our descriptions. One thing that strikes me, again, in your process is that you approach the canvas with a very open mind about what could happen, what's going to evolve, like an abstract expressionist like, again, what I think it was Harold Rosenberg who called it action painting, Mm -hmm. that it was a performance Mm -hmm. on the canvas. Yeah, it's funny. It reminds me that you had this history Mm -hmm. in performing arts and now you perform on the canvas. But what's so fascinating to me is that what comes out again and again is this sort of archetypal image of nature. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the longer I look at your paintings, the more they seem to represent something very, very essential to me about... Mm about the natural world. Mm -hmm. You know, primordial. Mm -hmm. Well, um, let's get back to uh, our chronology and your development as an artist. We said you spent um, a couple of years in the late 50s uh, in Europe, and you returned to the United States Mm -hmm. um, in what year? That was
1: 1961, I'm not quite sure
0: Deck time now, right? So you came back to the U.S. at a time when the civil rights movement Was really getting going full speed Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the world was transforming at a very rapid rate When you got back here Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how that affected you as an artist of color
1: Well, coming back in the first place, coming from Europe And realizing the great respect for the arts over there And no respect for it here Yeah None at all and uh, it's like uh, an also-ran. It, it's not in the central res- support of the uh, cultural acceptance in society. Mm-hmm. It's on the outside. One indulges it. One uses a penny as a decoration in a house. It's not part of any spiritual sensitivity there. And so coming back to the United States, it was like coming back to an empty void, really, in terms of the arts. And then the civil rights movement was just starting then. And uh, I was having a, a small exhibition, and one of the artists came to me was Fellowth Hines, the head conservative for the Smithsonian. And uh, he's a painter. Ah. And we met then. So he says, you've got to come. There's a group forming, and, and we're involved in discussing what's going on with African art or what's going on with our society and relation, relationship to the arts. And I said, whoa, I'd
0: like to come meet with them. And he says, Come. This man, who was the conservator at uh, the Smithsonian, mm-hmm. took a took an interest in your work, yes, and in your career, as another artist, as another artist. Mm-hmm. But he introduced you to a number of other African American artists, yes, mm-hmm. Romare Bearden, very famous. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, passed away, I think, in nineteen eighty-eight. Eighty-eight, yeah. Uh, one of the one of the premier African American artists of his generation. So you got to know these other guys, and
1: I met Bearden. And also Norman Lewis.
0: Very famous also.
1: He's very respectful yeah. American artists. Yeah. One of the best. Yeah. After Turkish mm-hmm. And uh, Charles Austin, mm-hmm. which was the uh, head the, uh, this the school in, in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance. He was part of this group. And then Hale Woodruff, one of the most famous uh, art educators in the United States, African American.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And you're saying that you, you as a group came together? This is the
1: first time I met these, these elders, I'd have to refer to them. Very prominent artists, but not really be accepted by the art market. These artists were on the fringe of the art market. They never accepted. Remember Beard had a gallery? Norman Lewis had a gallery. And that's it. And, and together you formed a group called Spiral? I became the co-founder of Spiral. Because these were the elders but they didn't know the young artists. huh. I brought in the younger
0: artists. huh. But this is a group of African American artists. Right. In the early sixties, yeah. Right. That uh that they got together to to do what exactly?
1: Well, they came together because of Philip Randolph called Romare Bearden and Hale Woodruff. And he's the one that formed the March of Washington. Everyone thinks that Martin Luther King did, but Phil Randolph is the one who did it. Wow. Because of, he was the head
0: of the Sleeping Car Porters Union. And he's the one who first got the ball rolling for the March on Washington. Because it was a labor mu- yeah. movement. Yeah.
1: Um, in terms of Afro Americans.
0: Right, right. And
1: so he called us, he called Roman Bearden in terms of forming an art
0: contingent uh-huh. for the march. Oh, for the march. Right. Oh. Okay. Did that's, you, sort
1: of, that's how it spired.
0: And did you all march then? No. Let me finish. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So they they got together and they started discussing the possibility of, of a group of artists doing this. So in order to do that, they felt they needed to contact other artists to do this, such in St. Louis and in Chicago and in Los Angeles and uh, the YUSA artists, which were in Harlem at the time, and how much they would be involved with the contingent, not necessarily with this group, but as a contingent to go to Washington. But we got involved with such a debate about what was going on in terms of the acceptance of the art world and, and the visual arts. We never went because we, in our, in our discussion, we went individually but not as a group. Uh-huh. But the ones we contacted in these other areas went as a group. Uh-huh. And we didn't go as a group uh-huh. because of the debating, constantly debating about what's going on with the discrimination and omission and denial of African American artists. Yeah. Well, what but we're no, what we also we discovered that some no women were in the galleries. Women were denied as minorities at the time, acceptance in the art world in New York,
0: uh, with the exception of a few very famous female no. artists. No? no, no, Louise Nevelson. No. no. She was,
1: really? She was the one who prated out there to fight for the women artists. Oh
0: wow, wow, <laughs> amazing. With well, Louise Nevelson, none of them they were in the galleries, really. So what was this, this group that you, um, you know, co-founded, the Spiral Group, this group of African-American artists, what were you able to accomplish?
1: Well, at the time, we were trying to becoming more aware of who we are, why we are, and for what reasons we should exist. We discovered who we were. Are you a European artist? What, what is your ethnic background? <laughs> you have to realize all of these people were multicultural backgrounds. They anticipated the future of multiculturalism in the society. So right then they said, what is American culture? Multiculturalism. Yeah, Everyone brings a little piece to the pie. All the cultures. And uh, at that time, these were brilliant men. And a meeting with them was just unbelievable. So they got caught up in this challenge. Why are you doing what you're doing? And then Ralph Ellison joined us. He did. And, and James Baldwin. Really? Yes. They joined the Spiral Group? The Spiral Concept. The, the Spiral American Concept. Group. Okay. Okay. Because this is what happened in terms right. of the club. Right. Like the FX person who was involved with the club yeah. said, we're not a club. Yeah. we was a discussion group. And that's what happened. To the Spiral was a discussion group mm-hmm. and a concept. And, uh, so you got to know... Uh, so the myth now is the fact that this was a club okay. and denied women being members of it, which is
0: nonsense. Uh, okay. I didn't know about that. But right. uh, you just dropped two... Two very impressive names. Did you get to know Ralph Ellison and, and James Baldwin? Yes, you did. Yes. Well, got any stories for me?
1: Well, Ralph Ellison, I met him once at the Century Club. I don't know if you know about the Century Club in New York. No. It's a distinguished club of the uh, of senators, congressmen, and distinguished people in the arts. Uh huh. There's a member of it. All uh-huh. male.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it was
1: a reason I didn't especially wanted to join. Uh huh.
0: <laughs> Were you invited? I was invited. You were invited. And that's where I met wow. Ralph Ellison. And uh, tell me about Ralph no. Ellison.
1: Very distinguished, distinguished man. Yeah. Very sensitive. Very brilliant. Yeah. Extremely brilliant. He had his, he had his finger on the nerve ends of this con- of the country.
0: In addition to Ralph Ellison, you say you got to know uh, James Baldwin. James Baldwin. Did you know him as Jimmy? Jimmy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, tell me about him.
1: Well, he was, he was a very astute person. He. Uh, He doesn't break down and get uh, frivolous with his conversation. No, no. (laughs) And very sensitive and very warm and respectful of other people. That's what I found out right away. So all of these great minds came together. I didn't realize how profound these people were until I listened to them talk about the sensibility of the future of American society. They were not talking just about the art. They were talking about the creative sensibility of a society. Not in terms of painting and drawing, anything like that at all. Mm. And here again, I've reached another plateau of creative consciousness, right? Mm. <laughs> mm. Ever since grandma. Mm. <laughs> Keeps going on. And so to so each one of these people were unbelievably profound and why they were doing
0: what they're doing. Well, that leads me to a question I've been wanting to ask you. Mm-hmm. At the height of the Civil rights and sort of black consciousness movements, you were painting landscapes, which right. is not what was considered to be the, the sort of political statement well, that people were interested why in. Why I
1: kept on doing it, Norman Lewis wanted to recognize what I was doing mm-hmm. internalized creativity. Norman Lewis, yeah. Norman Lewis. And he says, What you're doing? He says, I'd like to do that, but I don't want to be that imagery conscious form, right? But what you're doing is, is my feelings. Uh-huh. So that would encourage and supported what I was doing.
0: But did you have trouble getting acceptance as an African American artist who was painting non political, seemingly non social subjects?
1: But so was Norman
2: Lewis. Right.
0: He was abstract.
1: And this is what he said. Yeah. Because so, I was questioning why are you painting what you're painting? This yeah. is not black art. Right. He said, what is black art? Good question. What is black art? Yeah. Representational art? Yeah. Representational images? Or was painting by a black artist, and that was it right there, right? Mm, mm, <laughs> mm. And there's nothing been written about that group in Spiral. No exhibitions of that group other than what they did. They did a little exhibitions, and I didn't want to participate in. I felt these people should be in a museum exhibiting, mm-hmm. not in a little local storefront. And I would. I've joined another group, which is the uh, Black Emergency Coalition Group with Benny Andrews. He and I formed this group together. And they, we went and
0: picked it into museums and the galleries, right? For for a greater inclusion of black artists, right? Or artists of color, I should say. It, it it's taken decades, but now people like Romare Bearden and and mm-hmm. Norman Lewis and yourself have finally gotten the kind of recognition that you were fighting for. Well, the only
1: thing we me is a black artist. You know, there's that. They know? didn't, or they don't. No, they don't. They don't. Uh-uh. And And is that? Because of my subject matter. Because it's landscapes. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh boy. <laughs> Uh, You're not playing black subjects, right? Yeah, right. the attitude.
0: <laughs> and on top of that, as you've told me, you've come to realize more and more over the years just how important your Native American heritage is to your style, to your aesthetic. Right. Yeah, and A complete dedication to nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You are painting um, all the time these days. Every day, every if day.
1: A painting is never finished. That's the problem. I don't leave them around. <laughs> And my, my uh, agents take them away because I'll paint over them if, if they stay around too long.
0: Aha! <laughs> uh-huh, I'll just w- change them. You're one of those guys. Not painting, but I'll just change them. Someone has to stop you. You will not leave your paintings alone.
1: You no, know, because there's always something I can do on them. Like the one I was doing over here.
0: Yeah. If, if it's on a wall long enough, I said,
1: it needs some change.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, it could use a few touches. Right. So, so you don't feel like any of yours are really, really finished.
1: No. Because the mystery in there is... It's elusive and still
0: going on. Yeah. It's
1: never really finished.
0: Um, well, as you talk about your paintings never being finished, about going back to them, about your agent having to take them away so that you won't paint over them. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I'm getting this sense, as I do, from just looking at them of, of life. So
1: the painting is not precious. Right, right. In fact, this is it, or this, yeah. is this masterpiece or something. No, it's not precious. Yeah. It's, uh, there, there, again, it's living in the creative existence, not involved with a product. Yeah. Painting a product.
0: You know, I was saying that looking at your paintings, I get a sense of life in them. It sounds to me like they are, for you, living things.
1: They have a life of their own after a while. I know some collectors that had the painting, they said, Your painting changes every course of the day. I said, Really? Right. They feel this constant changing of illusion, right? And so I feel good about that. A lot of collectors, uh, especially a collector in San Francisco. She has about 10 of my paintings. She said they keep changing. So she moves them from room to room where the light's different, right, which they look different,
0: right? <laughs> I, I would say that's a real accomplishment. Well, I hope so. When you're not painting, are you thinking about painting?
1: I'm thinking about painting, but I'm thinking about creative thinking, creative thinking, uh,
0: which was part of Ralph
1: Ellison. He's constantly involved with the mindset of creativity and, and thinking. And how how it can be applied? Is is writing the best form to do it there again? You know. Yeah. Is is painting the best form to make this contribution, or is music the best form to make the best contribution? What is the better form to communicate, in terms to the creative uh, development? And and uh,
0: doesn't it depend on the person? Well, have to do it. Each Depends one. on the artist. Each one it? has this. Yeah.
1: And some says in teaching, what do you feel? I said everyone has this possibility. Yeah. Everyone has it, but they never really find a niche in order to use it or to apply it or find some way to make the contribution. Mm. But everyone
0: has it. Mm. Um, I want to come back to a word you've used a number of times in this conversation, illusion. 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 Mm-hmm. What's that word mean to you? I mean, as I look at your painting, what's what's the illusion? Metamorphic. <laughs> Metamorphic. <laughs> it's something which is intangible Yeah. and suggestive. Uh-huh.
1: Not really there. Well, I'm looking at your painting. So the illusion is what? homestead is an illusion which each individual brings their experience to. Ah. All right? Yeah. So one person, it's it's one kind of element. Another, it's completely different. Mm. So everyone brings their association to this suggestion. Well, that's what it is, a suggestion. And it's an illusion, Right. Which doesn't really exist, only within your oneself.
0: <laughs> Yet, calling your paintings illusory doesn't mean they aren't real, too. Not real. They're not real. No, well, I think they are. Just, I beg just, to differ. They're just an illusion. <laughs> <laughs> they're just a suggestion. That's all they are. <laughs> well, Rick, uh, I just have to say it's been really nice hallucinating with you today. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Mayhew. A selection of his work is on display now at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. That show was originally scheduled to end in January, but has been held over until March 7th. Richard Mayhew will also be jurying an upcoming exhibition at the Santa Cruz Art League. It's called Nature's Treasures, Landscape Painters of California, and it runs from May 29th through June 27th, You can learn more at scal.org. That's scal.org. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Back next week, Sunday at noon, right here on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP.
2: Without a song, the day would never end. Without a song, the road would never bend. When things go wrong A man ain't Got a friend Without a song That field Of corn Would never see a bough. That field Of corn Would be deserted now a man is born But he's No good know-how Without I've got my troubles and woes But sure as I know The Jordan will roll I'll get along As long as a song Is deep in my soul I'll never know What makes The rain to fall I'll never know What makes The grass so tall I only know There ain't no Oh.